The following audio is from Shady Grove Presbyterian Church in Rockville, Maryland. Our mission is to follow Jesus Christ and labor for His kingdom both in our area and around the world. For more information about Shady Grove Presbyterian Church, please follow us on Facebook and visit ShadyGrovePCA.org. We're looking at 1 Peter 5. Let me pray for us as we consider His Word. Father, as now as we Read this text, may it read our hearts. We know that this word is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. And we pray that it would search and know the attitudes of our heart. Pray it would bring the conviction that's needed. And Lord, I pray that it would also show us that we'd look up and see Christ as all these things speak of Him. And pray that, Lord, we would be changed and pray that we would rest in your loving arms. Work here in our midst. We give you our worries, our fears, and our sin. Help us to have thoughts that are worthy of you. We ask in Jesus now. Amen. Hear God's word. This is First uh, Peter chapter 5. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in charge, but being examples to the flock." And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. Casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore Confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. By Silvanus, a faithful brother, as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with the kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. And so here we're getting the closing arguments, the concluding remarks. And, and last week, I didn't really have time to go into this idea. Last week, we looked at, uh, don't even be surprised at the fiery trial, verse 12, when it comes to test you as though something strange were happening to you. And so last week, we really kind of talked about how metal, particularly like silver, and when you purify it and you put it to the fire, you have the dross that will be removed from it, and it can't stand the fire, and, and the impurities will be burned off from it. And the 
that metaphor is played out in those passages, and he's reminding us that God's, um, he's starting with his judgment, and his judgment is a, it's not a condemnation, um, it's more of an inspection, um, but it's also a purification, and we will stand before him. And so the, what uh, most commentators think that Peter is just wrestling through different Old Testament passages. And so as you're reading 1 Peter, you're like, what is Peter's mind on? You know, and it's obviously he's got a scroll of Psalm 34. He's, there's a lot of Psalm 34. There's a lot of Proverbs. And there was a proverb in this quote here, even just from reading this passage this morning, that God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Proverbs 3.34. And last week he is quoting from Proverbs 11. If the righteous is scarcely saved or saved with difficulty, what will be the outcome of the ungodly and the sinner? But most commentators think that he's wrestling through Ezekiel 9 and Malachi 3. And in Ezekiel 9, God is bringing a judgment on Israel. And judgment starting in the house of God. And the house of God is the temple. And guess where he begins? Ezekiel 9, 6 says that he starts with the elders. And so when he starts in chapter 5 and he just moves right to talking about elders, it's because he still has Ezekiel 9, 6 on his brain. That judgment has come down on Israel in the temple and the elders were idolatrous. The elders are worshiping idols and God is bringing judgment. They are not worshiping the true and living God. They are worshiping things that are an abomination. And then you have Malachi 3, which is, uh, I'll just read it to you, because Malachi 3 is where we get this whole idea of the, the refining fire that he's talking about. And in Malachi 3, you probably remember where he says, Behold, I send my messenger. He will prepare the way before me. I think that's John the Baptist. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. Jesus is going to show up in the temple, and he did. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight because he's coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming, and who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire, and a, like a fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. Sound familiar? I mean, that's what we talked about all last week. That whole text of 1 Peter 4, 12 to 19, is Peter's wrestling through Malachi Three and now applying it to the body. And he will purify the sons of Levi. He will refine them like gold and silver, and, he will, and they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old, as in former years. Then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker in his wages the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. God has a heart for the widow, the fatherless, and the sojourner, and so should we. And so God is bringing this judgment, and that's, that's the context of the end of chapter 4. So then leading into chapter 5, you read chapter 5, and, and it's kind of like the children's sermon, like, it's always good to kind of ask, I think a good Bible study question to ask ourselves is, are there any animals in the text? Like, just as, you know, any animals in the text? And this one, well, let's see. We've got a roaring lion looking for a meal. 
We have sheep that are called the flock of God. We have shepherds and a chief shepherd. And all of them are mixed together in one chapter. And we're called a concluding uh, exhortation of the whole purpose of the book. Where I like when the author tells us the whole point. And that's in verse 12. That this is the true grace of God. This whole epistle is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. That's, that's the whole point. Is that trials are coming. Suffering is coming. And, and he's mentioned that over and over again. And the, and the suffering usually comes from unjust power structures. So he's talked about governing authorities. He talks about employers and employee relationships and husbands and wives. And sometimes things aren't right. And the people of God end up having to, to suffer. And so what are they to do? That's his concluding remarks. Well, he starts with, and we just kind of, you know, it all kind of revolves here with this idea of, you know, the sheep and the, and the lion they really revolve around pride in this chapter. Pride and humility. And then suffering and exaltation. So he's, he's contrasting this difference between pride. So what are elders to do? More than anything, they're to be examples to the flock. And the way that they're to do that is to be humble examples. They're not to be domineering. They're to be examples to the flock. They're not to do their work under compulsion, but rather we are now constrained by love, as Paul says, compelled by love in 2 Corinthians 5, to do their job willingly and not for money. Not a, not, you know, they're not to be greedy for gain, but eager. But they're to be a humble people. And, and isn't it interesting how Peter addresses them? Does he say here, I exhort the elders among you as an apostle and an eyewitness of his majesty? That, I mean, in 2 Peter, he does refer to, he's an eyewitness of his majesty. He's seen the transfiguration. I mean, that's, that's his big appeal in, in 2 Peter 1. But here in 1 Peter 5, 1, he just comes alongside and says, he's a, he's a fellow elder. I'm one with you. And he's a witness of the sufferings of Christ. And so this whole epistle has been going back and forth about how Jesus suffered and then was exalted. Jesus died and, 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 he's, re and well, he's reproached, he's maligned, he's, he's a lamb to the slaughter. You know, the end of chapter 2, he's just constantly reminding us that's, what that's what's going to happen to us. And that we're to follow in his steps. We are going to suffer and then be exalted. And so we're to be, a, the elders are to be humble. And then the people that are under the elders' care, he says, those who are younger, he says, likewise. So the idea of likewise is just as the elders are to be humble, you who are younger be subject to the elders, meaning you be humble. And so the humble is follow the elders. And we live in a day and age where it's kind of like the bumper sticker of question authority. You know, like, like I, I know the doctor said I should do that, but I don't want to take that medicine. I'm going to get a second opinion, you know? I mean, I, you know, it's funny how you, you, you don't show up, you know, after your knee surgery and tell the doctor, you know, I don't really like the way that you did that procedure. You know, I don't really like the way that you connected that. But we, we wouldn't do that. And yet, we, we are in an age where 
often the, 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 the leaders are questioned, like, you know, I didn't like that message. I didn't, I didn't like the way you said that. I didn't like that. <laughs> well, we're, we're actually called to be subject to the elders. They have to give an account. I mean, we are told here about the elders that the chief shepherd's going to appear. I mean, and, and Peter has such a good way of, of presenting this. He doesn't say that when the chief shepherd appears, you're all going to be judged. I mean, he could have said that. But he says... When the chief shepherd appears, you'll receive the unfading crown of glory. Like, keep, keep on keeping on. And he's, he's motivating them by the grace of God. And he's using, using the unfading word again. Because the reminder is the beginning of the book told you that everything's fading, right? And this is not fading. This crown that's before you, this eternal life is unfading, undefiled. It's all good. So he tells the younger people, be subject to the elders. But then all of us, what does all of us have to put on a coat of mail? We all have a coat of armor. We all have something we're all to dress up with. How are we all to dress up this morning? Verse 5, that all of us are to clothe ourselves with humility towards one another. None of us has got this thing figured out. None of us is just crushing it in the Christian life. Like, man, I am just killing it. I am just gung-ho for Jesus. You know, like we, we've all, you know, we have, we have arrived. What do we need more than anything? We need God to save us from ourselves. We should be praying each morning, Lord, save me from me. Save me from me today. Start listening to self. What is self saying? Somebody challenged me with that this week. What is your self-talk? What are you really saying? And is it really glorifying to God? Or is it self-pity? Is it whining and complaining about other people? What is the, the noise that's going on? Is it really a humble communication with the Lord? Because we are a needy people. And it's interesting, we're going to start the Gospel of Mark. Next week, I mean, most scholars think that Mark is, John Mark is recording from Peter's preaching. So we're going to go from 1 Peter, and now we're going to look at Peter's preaching and his preaching, and Mark has summarized, and we, we get this gospel of immediately, immediately, and we're seeing all these incredible things about Jesus. And guess who gets it? Guess who gets it in the gospel of Mark? Is it the religious leaders? Is it the elders? Is it the chief priest or the priest? Is it the scribes? Is it the Pharisees, the religious elite? Like, who gets it? It's the desperate. The people that get it in Mark are people that are desperate. They are hungry. They are needy. They, have, they are like, I have, they, they get it. They come to Jesus because they are desperate. And Jesus ministers to them. If you're willing, you can make me clean. It's a leper. Who wants to touch a leper? I mean, if, but if you're willing, you can make me clean. And what does Jesus do? He makes him clean. And so we, I think for us, I'm excited to see what the Lord's going to do in this next chapter of our church as we repent and believe in the gospel. That repentance and belief is not just this one thing that, you know, I did that 10 years ago. But the fresh testimonies of this week, I've repented and I believe the gospel.
I believe that God was enough for me. And I put my trust in him afresh and repented of my self-pity, my woe is me, my wanting to run to comfort, my wanting to be in a small group that would be all about the people that I like and all my besties. And I wanted to be in a small group where everybody would make much of me and say, you know what, I repented of that. I started thinking about how can I just go and be a blessing to other people in a small group and that it wouldn't be about my agenda and and me and my needs, but I would just go and be a, a blessing to others. God has blessed us so that we would bless others. And that's what he would have the elders do here in this passage. And then he tells all of us to clothe ourselves with humility to one another. So this is a horizontal humility, but then there's a vertical humility. It's humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. And so at the proper time, he may exalt you. And it's interesting when you read this. I mean, you can't help kind of read 1 Peter 5 and and think echoes back to Peter's life. Because Peter was kind of like just the opposite of all these things, isn't he, in certain places in the Gospels? Like, He's the one who goes to Jesus and tells him, is, is, you know, who do you say that I am? And as soon as he confesses him, then he tells him, you must not suffer. You, you know, these things should not be so. When Jesus says, you know, he, the Son of Man is going to go as the, you know, they're going to, he's going to suffer, be crucified. And Peter pulls him aside and like, no, it shall never be. And now he's writing all about suffering. And, and then the whole thing about the lion and a roaring lion? I mean, you remember that, that Jesus said to Peter, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat, but I prayed for you that your faith may not fail, and when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. How does this sobering word from the chief shepherd who has appeared, how do those words fall upon Peter's ears and heart? Is he a humble recipient of that word? Does he say, oh, don't let that happen. Lord, please have mercy on me. Forgive me, I'm so weak in myself. Please keep me and protect me. Does he respond in any way like that? What was Peter's reply? He doesn't believe it. Lord, I'm ready I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Jesus, the chief shepherd, he then tells him, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny me three times that you know me. Like, we need to take this seriously. I mean, when the Bible refers to, to this idea of a roaring lion, I mean, have you thought about some of these, how the devil is described in the Bible? I mean, he's just called like the prince of the power of the air, the prince of darkness, the ruler of this world, the father of lies, a murderer from the beginning, and Revelation just says he's the great dragon. Like, there's some pretty scary stuff. And a humble approach is to think, the enemy can eat my lunch at any time because I have to be saved from myself, the world, the flesh, and the devil, but he begins with the flesh. 
And then the world jumps in and the devil jumps in, but he begins with the flesh. And so the humble approach is to realize, I am desperate for the Lord. And you probably remember the ending of John's gospel and the end of Mark's gospel is that Peter experienced, he experienced verse 10. He experienced this great promise of the Bible. Like if I was a physical therapist, I would just want to have this like this plaque, you know, that would want to be my, 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 my label, you know, like, like, you know, I myself will re- restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Like that's my job as a PT guy, you know, I want to restore you, strengthen you, get you back and get you going again, right? I mean, that's what a good physical therapist does. And a shout out to mine, because he's put me back together three times, but um, anyway, a good physical therapist will do that. Well, Jesus does that, doesn't he? After you've suffered a little while, PT's not fun. After you've suffered a little while, and here Peter has denied the Lord, and he has suffered, but God comes to him, Jesus comes to him, and restores him. And we're told in Mark 16 that when Jesus is raised from the dead, the women come and they're, they're just going to bring some spices. They're going to, you know, prepare him for his burial. And they're wondering who's going to move the stone when we get there. And they get there and there's a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe. And they're, they're alarmed, obviously. <laughs> and he said to them, so this angel now speaks and says, don't be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth. Nazareth, who was crucified, he is risen, he's not here, see the place where they laid him, but go tell his disciples and Peter that he's going before you to Galilee. Isn't that great? Even the angel is in on the redemptive, restorative mission. The angel has a a word, and the angel's word is, you know, Peter probably doesn't even think of himself as a disciple anymore. So go tell the disciples, and Peter, here the angel's telling him, and Peter, make sure you get him, and get him there. And then you get the end of John's gospel in John 21, and there's Peter fishing again. He says, I'm going fishing, going back to what I'm familiar with. A couple of his best besties said, I'm coming with you. And of course, they fished all night and hadn't caught a thing. And there's this person on the shore, and he yells out there, Children, have you any fish? Day's just starting to break. It's pretty dusk out. They don't recognize him. The person says, Try the right side. There's some fish over there on the right side, and you'll find some. The text says they're not able to haul it in because they caught so many fish. And John realizes Luke 5 all over again. Like, he's done it again. Like, he says, it's the Lord. And Peter, of course, being the man of action, but the man of like weird action, he's already stripped for work, but now he puts his garment back on and threw himself into the sea so he'd be extra heavy. I mean, you know, he's not thinking like, well, I guess I want to prepare myself to meet Jesus. So he throws his garment on and it just says he threw himself into the sea. Then he gets to Jesus and he comes back to the boat, pulls this great amount of fish in, and Jesus has already has breakfast. He already has fish cooking, has bread. And he says, bring some fish. Come, let's have breakfast. And, and then it says nobody dared ask who it was. They all knew it was the Lord. But after the breakfast, 
Jesus does the loving restoration work. And he asks Peter three times, do you love me? And each time Peter replies, you know that I love you. With growing distress, as Jesus says, feed my flock. Same thing here as 5-2. 5-2, shepherd the flock, feed the flock. Tend my sheep. You see, Peter experienced the lion. He now knew he was a sheep. And now he's been a shepherd who's been restored. And now he, in turn, is now commissioning and passing on the baton to these elders to shepherd these sheep. As Peter is now a humble elder, feeding the flock, reminding them of the true grace of God to stand firm in it, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. And so let me ask you a question this morning. What does pride need to grow? What does it need to do to grow in your life? What does pride need to do to grow in your life? I mean, God opposes the proud. I mean, we all think, well, that doesn't apply to me. I mean, here's the interesting thing about if we're prideful, we wouldn't know it. We wouldn't know because we're, we're deceived. If you're prideful, then you wouldn't even know. But what does pride need to grow in your life? Does it need like some extra elements? All it needs is a heartbeat. That's all it needs for pride to grow. And every day you wake up and who's on the throne? By default. I know who's on the throne for me. I instantly have to start fighting because self is on the throne. So pride doesn't need anything. But sometimes it does get some things, right? Somebody all of a sudden gives you a compliment. All of a sudden, you may start finding yourself feeling like you're a bit successful, a bit virtuous, maybe growing in some influence, have some gifts. Maybe you're an athlete or you're an academic or you're a good musician. Pride was already there, but now all of a sudden, as people begin to, to stroke it and feed it. But we're naturally prideful. We're naturally suspicious of others, but not of ourselves. We naturally want to think, it's my money. It's my job, it's my car, it's my house, it's my gifts, it's my wisdom, it's my plan, my goals, my attainments. And James just says, if God wills, we'll do this or that. If God wills. You go into Barnes & Noble and you're not going to find much in the humility section, are you? But if you go looking for self-help, if you go looking for the be-all-you-can-be section, the self-actualization, because the whole world right now is just revolves around self-actualization. It's all about you. And it's no wonder that pride is the, one of the chief of the seven deadly sins. Just be reminded of a couple great men of faith and what they said about pride. I'll give you three. John Calvin, John, Jonathan Edwards, and then C.S. Lewis. But Calvin says this, there's nothing more acceptable to the human mind than flattery. Nothing more acceptable to the human mind than flattery. Then, if a discourse is pronounced which flatters the pride spontaneously, springing up in man's inmost heart, nothing seems more delightful. Accordingly, in every age, he who is most forward in extolling the excellences of human nature is received with the loudest applause who is most forward in extolling the excellence of human nature. So if, as long as man is being exalted, and the people will receive it with the loudest applause. 
And the interesting thing is Calvin was really, um, he would have been like the, the mega pastor in his day. He had a following. The publishers were lined up for him. They were clamoring. They were competing as to who would be able to publish his books because, man, if I can just do the commentary and if I can just do the institutes and if I can just do the liturgy book, like they all wanted to publish his stuff because they knew that there was money to be made. Calvin was big time, but he knew the heart of man. Edwards put it like this. Jonathan Edwards said that pride is the chief inlet of smoke from the bottomless pit to darken the mind and mislead the judgment. So how would you know this morning if there was a darkening of the mind and a misleading of judgment? Well, here's a test that Edwards gives. He said, spiritual pride tends to speak of other person's sins. So how do we speak about other person's sins? He says this, if we speak of other people's sins with bitterness or with laughter and levity and an air of contempt... He says, but pure Christian humility rather tends either to be silent about these problems or to speak of them with grief and pity. How about us? I know for myself, it often isn't the grief and pity that it should be. Edward said, pride is the worst viper that is in the heart, the greatest disturber of the soul's peace and sweet communion with Christ. It was the first sin that ever was and lies lowest in the foundation of Satan's whole building and is the most difficulty rooted out. It's the most hidden, secret, and deceitful of all lust and often creeps in insensibly in the midst of religion and sometimes under the disguise of humility. And C.S. Lewis just describes every other sin as flea bites in comparison. He says the essential vice is, is pride. He says unchastity, anger, greed, drunkenness, and all that. He said they're just mere flea bites in comparison. It was pride that the devil became a devil. Pride leads to every other vice. It's the complete anti-God state of mind. He says, does this seem too exaggerated? He says, you know, here are a couple tests that Lewis gives to see if pride is reigning in the heart and needs to be tampered down as we repent and believe the gospel afresh. Do you dislike pride in others? That's one of his tests. He says, the reason you dislike it in others is because it's in you. <laughs> so he says, I pointed out a moment ago that the more pride one has, the more one dislikes pride in others. So if you're able to detect it easily in others, it's because it's in you. <laughs> he says, okay. So then he says, um, he says, if you want to find out how proud you are, the easiest way to ask is to ask yourself, how much do I dislike it when other people snub me or refuse to take any notice of me or shove their oar in or patronize me or show off? The point is, is that each person's pride is in competition with everyone else's pride. Pride is essentially competitive. And if there wasn't somebody else to compete with, then it wouldn't show up. But like if you're a musician and you say, man, I really loved hearing so-and-so play. They're really, they're really good. And you're over here, the musician, they didn't compliment you. Then you'd say, well, they're not really all that good. You know, they, they miss this or that. You know, we, we would tend to, you know, they're not really all that special, you know. And, and, and like the preacher does that, you know, they tell you about, you know, oh, this great preacher. I've been listening to this guy preach and he's just great. And I say, well, yeah, but he's, you know, he's this or that. He doesn't really do that well. And we begin to like diss on the person. Why would we do that? Because we're essentially competitive. Rather than saying, it's okay. Like, yeah, they are, they are really good. 
Praise God for that, because it's his gift. It's all from him. It all comes down from him, the Father of lights. And so we need to know this morning, God opposes the proud. Grace only flows one direction, and it's downhill. It flows to the humble, to those who humble themselves before God. And so often when we're suffering, we're thinking, why, God? Why have you brought this into my life? Why is this happening to me? Have I not done something right? Why why is this? And the reality is, is that God is the one who exalts. He's the one who humbles us, but he's also the one who exalts us. And he exalts in due time. And so the, the path of humility is to entrust our souls to our creator. And then the, the, uh, the command of verse 6 is followed by the participle of verse 7. So what does the fruit of humility look like? Well, it looks like prayer. It just goes, flows from one to the other. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand so that at the proper time he may exalt you casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. So if we're really humble, the way we know is, well, how's, am I praying? Am I trusting? And am I leaning on God? Am I asking him for help? Am I, am I casting my anxieties on him? Or am I riddled by anxiety because self is really trying to do everything, trying to control, trying to lead, rather than entrusting our souls to the creator? And so, What Peter's getting at here is we're to be humble leaders, humble, clothed towards one another, humble in all of these things. And then he gives some, you know, some pretty good incentives. Why? God opposes the proud. That would be a good reason. He gives grace to the humble. And then he refers to him as we see who God is in this chapter. There's a lot about God here. God is the chief shepherd. God is the the one who is the God of all grace, verse 10. He's the one who cares for you, verse 7. But we're told in verse 6 that we're under the mighty hand of God. Does that ring any bells? Because the mighty hand of God is a big term. And it's the one that Deuteronomy just keeps coming back to, chapter, 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 because he knows when they go into the promised land, they're going to be tempted to be prideful. They're actually going to think when they go into the promised land that, that they did it. That it was something about us. And, that, and, and when you get there, you're going to think that, well, aren't we special? So he tells them this. In chapter 4, he tells them that, has any God ever attempted to go and take a nation for himself from the midst of another nation by trial signs, by wonders, and by war, by a mighty hand and an outstretched arm? And he says, all of which the Lord did for you in Egypt before your eyes. Be humble. Chapter 5, you shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God has commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. So keep the Sabbath day because I'm the one who did it for you and redeemed you, and I'm the one who's saving you. I saved you back there so you can rest today because I'm the one who's saving you. Chapter 5. Chapter 6, when it's time to observe... Uh, the pastor, well, he's going to get to that, but he says, when your son asked you in time, what's the meaning of the testimonies, statues, and the rules of the Lord your God has commanded you, you shall say to your son, we were Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt, and the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. 
And the Lord showed signs and wonders, great and grievous, against Egypt and against Pharaoh and all his household before your eyes. Chapter 7. For you're a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be, the, to be a people for his treasure possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any of the peoples that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it's because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And so God wants us to be a humble people, casting our cares on the Lord, for he has promised that he will sustain us. He will never let the righteous fall. And when God's people cry out in prayer, what does God normally do? He says, call to me in the day of trouble, and I will deliver you, and you shall glorify me. Now, I know there are exceptions, but they're like I before E. But we're quick as Presbyterians to always bring out the I before E and remind people a few times God didn't answer. But he typically answers our prayer when we cry to him. Sometimes he pushes hold and sometimes he leaves a thorn in the flesh. But he often delivers. Praise God. And now he's promised that this great promise of 510, that what God will do in this life, we're trusting him to do that, but we know that fully it will happen in life to come is that God restores, he literally mends. He mends broken bones. He mends us, just as the, the disciples would mend their nets. That's the same idea. God will restore you. He will confirm you. He's going to support you. He's going to, just as Jesus set his face to Jerusalem, he's going to give you that resolve to, to confirm in you. And he's going to make you able. He's going to strengthen you. And then he's going to establish you just as the Sermon on the Mount ends with the rain fell, the floods came, the winds blew and beat on the house, but it didn't fall because it was founded. Same word, founded on the rock. We're founded on the rock. He establishes us. And so that's the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. There's an actor by the name of Dustin Hoffman. I'm sure many of you know who he is. And he once said in an interview, he says, an actor... You're trying to get one with the author. The idea is this. As an actor, your job is not to just see the scene from your character's point of view, but you're trying to discern the author's purpose for the scene and for all the characters in the scene. And once you know your place in the story, the nature of all the other relationships comes into place, and so then you're able to play your part in character. Each of us is given a role in the body of Christ. Our job is to get one with the author. Play your part. The way you play your part is clothe up with humility. Live out this humility to each other. As we lean on the script writer, he's still writing the script. The Holy Spirit is, is still doing works among his people. And this is the end for, for Peter. It's coming up, and he knows it's, it's coming. And he's passing on the baton to the church, and now it's being passed on to us. And we're to pass it on to the next generation. And lean on him, and not our own understanding. Let's pray together. Father, we are a desperate people, and so often we don't live like it. 
We think we got this. And we're, we're foolish, self-deceived. Well, we can't do anything unless you build the house. Otherwise, we labor in vain. We can't even watch unless you watch for us. Lord, come and build and work here in our midst. Teach us how to pray. Help us to be needy. Save us from ourselves. Save us by your mighty hand. And in due time, help us to trust you in the time. We know that after we've suffered a little while, you've promised that you will restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish us. Give us grace, we pray. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.